Cricket Love Stories, Neil Kagram here with Graham Woodward. Graham, appreciate your time today. So Graham, you're the man behind the mic as such. Um, can you give us a little bit of your background and your current role specifically working in cricket? Yeah, I think it's probably because it's a uh, face for radio, but yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm very fortunate. I've uh, been involved with cricket for most of my life, certainly working life. Um, currently, I voice uh, all England internationals in uh, England and Wales, um, which basically means uh, presenting in ground, working with um, Sky for presentations um, and a few other bits and bobs, but not so much these days. Um, which covers everything from ground announcements to match to uh, interval entertainment and various other things uh, along with a few other colleagues who uh, work with us on those so that's the main title but I've also um, had that position with Sussex and also Lords and Middlesex for the last few years so uh, busy time during the summer but a very enjoyable one. And how long have you been doing this for? Well, I started when I was um, 19, um, rather fell into things in a, in a very, very lucky way and was um, fortunate to, to get live um, experience at a very, very early age, which I've kind of uh, worked from. And it was a great actual example at the time that um, live opportunity was actually better than qualifications uh, to a certain extent, because although I did National Diploma in Media, uh, which was equivalent back then to A-levels, it was... It, it was live experience that was much better than actually going on to university at the time because I had the opportunity to do so um, and obviously in a lot of fields that's not the case but certainly for me it was the best decision I actually made. And your first opportunity into cricket came through? So the story went and it was quite amusing because I never actually watched a cricket match at all until I was about 14-15 um, and then midway through secondary school, me and a friend one day went to Sussex when the Benston Hedges Cup was uh, in operation, which uh, in various formats, um, probably at the time was 55 overs a side, and we went to Hove and enjoyed, enjoyed the day. I think Sussex were playing Surrey. Uh, went back a few times and gradually started to follow and enjoy and actually know what was going on. Um, and within a year or two, I uh, got to the stage where some friends that I'd made there said, well, if you're going to be here, why don't you do some work over the summer? Um, do some stewarding. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I said, yeah, not a bad idea. So uh, at the time, got to <clears throat> know the, the guy that was in charge there and sort of suggested that I was keen to do some work. So did that um, and was just checking passes, uh, various things. And um, then we were at an outground at Horsham for a festival. Uh, I think I was working on the Players' Gate. And uh, back in the day, the secretary, chief exec, however you want to call it at the time, used to do the ground announcements, whereas the scorer used to do the cricket announcements. And he was in a meeting and this car needed moving. And I'd, at the time, wanted to do journalism. So... I'd started to do a little bit of voice work, but nothing major at this point, and was going along the journalist theme, doing some writing for local papers and uh, magazines. And there was a car, I think, that needed moving. So he was in a meeting. So I said, come on, just give us the mic. I'll do it, because it's urgent. So I did it, and everything else went from there. So I did that one announcement, and then he used to do cricket scores during the lunch breaks and tea intervals 
to tell people what was going on around the other grounds because of course back then mobile phones weren't what they are now so nobody was getting scores ball by ball as it as is easy with apps these days so I started to do the lunchtime and tea time scores for him um, and the following season the job became mine where I was doing everything um, but I think the real beauty of it was because I'd become such a cricket fan I kind of knew what I wanted to hear and the information that I wanted which I wasn't necessarily getting so I was then able to put that into what I made out to be the perfect job. Um, so when you mean the information can you go yeah more well basically so when you're sat there um, the guy that was was giving the information didn't really want to be doing it because he was doing another job i.e scoring so you want information on 50s you want up-to-date bowling figures you want to know what's going on if something's happened in the middle where you're thinking hang on a minute you know what what's happened here um change of ball or or you know someone gets injured and retired hurt no, in none of this information is being given so general information that when you're sat there watching you know exactly what's going on so and do you have free reign um or is it kind of scripted? So well, back back in those days, and to an extent now, away from England, everything is totally free reign. So the other crucial part is, particularly, obviously, when you're doing internationals, which is going around the world, whatever you're saying, you have to be sure of. Um, and obviously, we have now, particularly more as, as times come up to the current day, uh, we have someone that's sat with me who will be talking with various things. We've got someone that's in constant contact with the match referee and the umpires and um, to make sure that information's right. But when it comes to certain things happening on the spot, you have to know what's happening. And that's where the love and the experience of, of the game and cricket and being involved obviously helps because people used to think when it comes to bowling changes, when it comes to new batsmen, that I'm being told. But actually, I'm just doing that from view. And that, of course, means that early on in a series particularly when you get um, those teams that are, don't feature uh, on our coverage here that often, the likes of Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, um, the lower countries, as it were, in the rankings um, that may have new players. Pronunciations and recognising somebody is a key factor. And um, I learned an awful lot from Johnny Dennis, who did the England job before I did, and uh, Johnny gave me the tip of always looking for colours on a batsman's gloves, bat, what shoes he's wearing, so that he's instantly recognisable through binoculars from a distance. Um, certain grounds now we have spotters, so obviously when people come in, they're telling me who it is. But I would always check, because I'm the one that is putting the voice out there and is the one that's made to look silly if it's wrong. Um, and bowlers... You know, bowlers are the same, bowling changes, we're not giving the heads up, you have to be concentrating. And that's why, particularly test matches, while it's not particularly a difficult thing that people see you're doing, you are concentrating. And obviously since DRS has come into play, you're concentrating on every single ball of the day. Yeah, we were just talking off camera. You're one of the select few people, actually, that are, have to concentrate every ball of every day uh, of every second yeah as such so concentration levels must be high absolutely and quite often you're trying listening to sky commentators or tms um while you're working just to make sure you, you know you're on it and you're you're checking obviously nine times out of ten when it's england you're obviously interested so it's not like you're you know you're losing interest and you're actually generally watching 
And yeah, that's one of the lucky points because most of what I do, you know, I'm paid to be there. Um, and I'm very lucky to be in that position. Whereas, you know, if it wasn't the case, I may pay to go and watch it. So there is that. But at the end of the day, you are there to do a job as well. And, you know, no better example of that was the World Cup final where the drama that, you know, carried on throughout the whole of that day, particularly the, the you know, the latter hour, hour and a half, where you were genuinely and I was there working, had to tell 30,000 people what was going on, but really wanting England to win. So that's a, that was a great example where, um, you know, it was fantastic. And I got to do the trophy lift, which went around the world feed, which was something that is, you know, it's fantastic for me and will always be in place. So, you know, if I finish now with uh, cricket, I'll always have that honour. Um, yeah, and obviously so, seeing them win. Yeah, so, so we'll, we'll touch on the summer that just went mm. in a moment because obviously some momentous moments, you talk yeah. about the World Cup, Ben Stokes and Headingley, etc. But um, if we just rewind back, um, when did you actually work, what year did you actually start working for England? Um, so How did that position again come about? So I started in 99 with Sussex, um, went through and uh, what happened, the way that I got into the um, England setup was that um, after doing several years at Sussex, um, televised cricket obviously was a big thing even in the early 2000s and Sky used to cover um, Yorkshire Bank, Clydesdale Bank matches, Norwich Union League it was, it's had so many different titles, um, but the 40 over competition, particularly when floodlights came into play, um, Sussex obviously were one of the first to have floodlights um, and obviously used to have lots of TV games um, and when the ECB used to come in they quite often used to bring in their own crew and uh, I think on one occasion they had a problem so I did it and they were obviously quite pleased with the job that I'd done and the fact that I knew cricket because I think that was the biggest issue <clears throat> particularly when T20 came in the idea was, oh, let's get these people in uh, to try and jazz it up. But when you can't pronounce people's names or you don't know who anyone is, you lose all respectability. Um, and I think that's what had happened. So I was in the fortunate position that when T20 came in and they had these issues, that having worked with me, um, it was like, actually, we want someone that knows the game and knows the players. So I got in by doing uh, T20. And I was very fortunate. I did 12 finals days um, of uh, T20 and no better day than um, T20 finals day. And during that time, 2007, we had the, uh, 2009, apologies, we had the T20 World Cup, which was held in England. And with it, with it 220, myself and Johnny, who had uh, done it before me, uh, we basically... Um, did the competition together, which was fantastic because Johnny was very serious and dry a voice, whereas I was a bit younger and a bit more razzmatazz. So we did that competition together. So that was back in 2009. And then, of course, um, 2013, we had the Champions Trophy for the first time. So again, the idea was that that summer, which was an Ashes summer, we played New Zealand in the early part and the second part was the Ashes and squeezed in between was the Champions Trophy. So it was decided that Johnny would carry on doing New Zealand and Australia and I would do the Champions Trophy, which was obviously, uh, you know, at the time, a great honour. So 
that's where things changed because in the early part of that season, um, having done, I think at that point, seven, eight years of T20, uh, Johnny fell ill during the New Zealand series, which was uh, officially a warm-up effectively to, to the Champs Trophy. Um, so Johnny was taken ill. I then went and did the um, Champs Trophy as, uh, as planned. And then during the latter part of that, it was clear that Johnny wasn't going to be well enough to do the ashes and do the traveling, because obviously that is a key part of the job, the traveling. Um, and that's the hardest part of the job as opposed to the job itself maybe. Um, so it was like, okay, who's gonna, what's, what are we gonna do? So it's like, right, okay. It meant a really busy summer because T20 started, I think the day after the Champs Trophy final, two days after, um, and then the ashes. So it was a, a mixture of trying to do a bit of everything um, I did my first test in 2013 at Trentbridge, which was a fantastic test match, one of the um, best for obvious reasons. It was the one where Ashton Agar very, very nearly won a game from an impossible position for Australia. Went deep uh, into the afternoon session on day five. It was a fantastic game. Um, and then from there, it was quite apparent that Johnny wasn't gonna be well enough to come back and do the job with the traveling because of the treatment that he required. Um, so because of that, I then did the five test series with uh, Australia, which was obviously a great one to start with. And then um, from there, I've uh, carried on from strength to strength. So 2013 was when it all happened. And uh, here we are in uh, 2020, just about still surviving. So you've done three Ashes series, yep. World Cup, T World, 50 over World Cup, yep. T20. And two champs trophies. And two champions trophies. Yeah. But what does a typical day actually involve? So you get to the ground yeah, and just so talk us through your day. Yeah, basically get there. It's a long day. Um, get up nice and early. Make sure you're at the ground. Between, if it's a first day of a test match, half an hour before, 40 minutes before, obviously, depending on what ground we're at, we have a sound crew with us now who provide the speakers in the ground who uh, I've got to work with. You know, now they've been the same crew all the time I've been involved. So they'll make sure that um, everything's in place. I'll be there before an international the day before as well. Um, just to, very, not really test, but we normally have a briefing um, going over what's what's going to be happening. During would you the match. meet, say, um, overseas players? Would you like meet them just to confirm pronunciation of names? Yeah, particularly early in the series. Um, we'll, I mean, much as the crew now, there's, there's always a media officer now. So, but depending on where it is, if quite often people that I know within the game, um, Sri Lanka were a great example, a couple of years ago when Sri Lanka were over, and Chris Adams, who of course used to captain at Sussex, I know very, very well. Chris was the English liaison officer. So there we were the day before on the nursery ground at, at Lords walking around. There's Chris, I can go over and see Chris, and Chris will introduce me and we'll get the correct, uh, correct pronunciation because a lot of players now will say, oh, they don't mind what we're called. You know, but you want to do it right. And there's been two or three great examples over the years of, of players like that. Um, and nine times out of ten, it's not the player themselves that moans, it's the parents. So any examples you can give? Well, I think the best one was um, a few years ago, and it had been pronounced um, Mashady. Uh, Craig, who played down at Somerset, and I think went on to Glamorgan. But um, there was various things. Everyone settled on Mashady. And then um, just before the Lord's final, that year where he was playing, suggestion that it was Meshida. And 
again, depending on who you spoke to, it was a different thing. So the day of the final, I went over to the nursery ground and spoke to him and said, right, what is it? And he said, I really don't mind what you call me, um, but it is Meshida. So that day at Lourdes, I called him Meshida. And then from then on, everyone seemed to sort of sink into line because I think his parents were after that very much that it should be Meshida. And at the end of the day, when it's your name, you know, it should be right. So it's for me, it's something where it's one of those details that is worth going to actually speak to the person individually. We used, there was another one, um, Steph Pile, that used to play at Sussex and went on to Warwickshire. And two or three people, some were calling Pilot, some were calling PLA. There was all sorts of pronunciations. And having grown up with him in Sussex, I kind of knew, but I still have people trying to tell me uh, exactly what it was. And of course, the current one is Labuschagne, uh, who's uh, at Australia. And he's going to be a formidable force in, in world cricket for, for the next few years. He looks a fantastic player. He's another one where the media and um, all of broadcasting were told prior to the Ashes uh, in 2019 that we're going to call him Manus Labuschagne and uh, we'll settle at that. <laughs> okay, so going back to the actual day itself, mm. you said you get to the ground half an hour before on a test match yep. and just run through your kind of the protocols you go through, etc. So... The gates were normally open at nine o'clock. There can be a bit of a change, but we're there pre-gates uh, pre to make sure everything's working, all in operation. Um, this is where things have slightly changed because now we kind of have a show caller with us. So whereas before everything was a bit more ad-lib and we could um, basically have free reign, um, obviously now trying to enhance the experience for um, everybody that's within the ground, um, obviously, as well with the, the way that the world is now, there's obviously a lot of adverts and various things that are played on the big screen that we work into. And obviously, we'll always show highlights from the previous day. So normally start at around half nine, just basically waiting on seeing on the crowd as well, because obviously there's a lot of people in. We might go a bit earlier if there's not many people in. If it's a day three, four, five crowd, we might leave it till a bit later. And we'll do our usual welcomes, facilities, um, sponsor recognition of where they are within the ground that people can go and take part in activities and pick up uh, giveaways and various other things. Um, so that's kind of the first 30, 40 minutes. Obviously on the first day you've got the toss at half 10 where we again link in with Sky. So obviously that's something that needs to be done prior. Um, and it gets really busy that 10 past 10 through to 11 o'clock because obviously, particularly at internationals now, there's normally things going on just before You've got kids doing guard of honours. Uh, you've got people ringing bell. So again, that needs to be timed to perfection to make sure that, particularly when we're at Lords, because at Lords it's a big part of a match day on a on a big match day that the introduction is done, and the introduction that I do quite often is a minute, giving details of what the person's done in their career, um, and then obviously the crowd will give them a, a great reception the little dip in the applause and then the bell. So it has to be timed really well. So a lot of that will be done timing and practicing in that first hour between nine and 10 while things are pretty quiet. Um, obviously the game starts, then things you know, are down to me really. So for bowling changes, I've got constant contact with security at the ground. So if then, you know, I know that if someone needs to find somebody or they lose somebody or, you know, any emergency announcement needs to go out, I've got constant contact with them, which takes us through to lunch at one o'clock. And again, then the show caller will give me instructions of what to do, although obviously most days it's the same thing. So once you get into the routine, it's, it's quite simple. 
Um, but again, you'll have activities. There'll be, you know, there might be a sponsor activation during the interval. Last summer, um, the sponsors had us doing something on the outfield. So every lunch interval, I had to go down with a camera on pitch with two competitors, uh, and a competition game took place. So um, that took up 15, 20 minutes. Again, there'll be ad runs. Um, again, there'll be highlights. So there's always something going on, which again enhances the experience for people within the ground that, okay, a lot of people are gonna go off and get drinks and food, but for those that stay in the stadium bowl, you know, there's something going on. Um, similar at tea, there'll quite often be a band or musical entertainment, uh, which will get introduced. Um, and then the only good thing about the test matches is that uh, when the play finishes, which is never at six o'clock, it's always at half past six with the extra uh, time taken, um, we don't do a lot of the close of play. So after half six, once the players have left the field and everything, um, we can say our good nights and um, farewells. Um, and then it's off, but of course you get to seven, seven fifteen, get back to your hotel, maybe grab a bite to eat, and um, you're pretty tired. Uh, so there's, you know, not so much. Uh, of going out on the town or anything like that because you know you've got to be up at 6.30, 6 o'clock the next day to do it all again. Yeah. And the hardest part of the job, you mentioned travel. I think the thing is people don't see people, anybody that was given the opportunity to go and watch every ball of an English summer, it's a fantastic job and it is. Um, but obviously it does mean while you're doing it, you're giving up a block of your life um, to do that, which you know, it's, it's part and parcel of it. But we, we obviously stay in some nice hotels over the, over the country, which is lovely, but one hotel becomes another. It's a long time to be away, you know, from um, family, loved ones, and you, you are away just like the players do. And the players obviously have that same issue. Um, and it is a real commitment to do that, um, to be away. Because obviously if you've got a couple of series, you basically start you know, most summers with the international May through to September. Um, obviously in the years where we've had World Cups, Champs, Trophies, it's even longer because you have a, a month block in the middle or so where you are just constantly on the road. Um, so it's a, it's a great job. That's the hardest part, the concentration and the travel being away. Um, when you're actually in the ground and you're watching the cricket and you're doing day's work, that's kind of the easy bit. But the, the job, Every job has a downside, whatever it may be, whatever, you know, uh, however it may look. Um, but yeah, very lucky to be able to watch cricket and, as I say, to, to be paid to do something that if I wasn't, I would probably pay to go and watch. It's a very fortunate thing. And obviously you're reliant on your voice. So mm. is there, have there been any kind of instances where you've suffered from... So it's like cold illness, sore yeah. throats, and how do you get over that? Is there a reserve in place for, for example, say if you wake up one morning and you just, you just feel you just cannot, cannot speak appropriately or such? It happened in 2013 at the, the end, the oval uh, test match of that first Ashes. And it had obviously been an extremely long summer because not only was I doing Champs Trophy and coming and did the, uh, the test series, I'd also been traveling an awful lot doing the T20, which was my normal schedule. And um, come the Oval, I was not well at all. Um, and funny enough, Johnny was well enough. Johnny, who um, obviously I'd taken over from being in London, he was able to come in and do a day, uh, which was handy. And then uh, if you go back and see the presentation for that series, my voice is very croaky. And I do sometimes get that with 
um, once you get to September of a summer. Not so much now because there are two, three of us. So there's a um, Steve who does uh, an awful lot of stuff with us. Um, he is more than capable of doing um, what I do. So there is someone there. Um, but I think now, as you get older, I think for me, it's just a case of learning that, you know, making, making sure you get a good night's sleep, making sure you don't get too tired, because it does tend to follow on that when you start to do that, you do start to get the, the colds. And obviously I've got a few things um, that I know will work for my throat and voice. That when I start Hot drinks, to feel, warm ups. Absolutely, you know the style, you know, you know. Everyone needs a fisherman's friend, you know. It's just, it's, you know, they, you know, basically, just to just to make sure everything is clear. So, um, yeah, it's 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 when you see the signs, that's when you try and get it early. And let's uh, let's go back to this summer, the summer that just went, mm. twenty nineteen, the World Cup, and the Ashes series. Let's go. Oh, let's touch on the World Cup to start yep. with. I know you mentioned it earlier. Phenomenal. The proudest. I think so, yeah, because there was, what was ironic, I mean, it was such a, a fantastic So how game. many games in, in the World Cup did you actually... I think I did 24. 24. 24 of them. So. All around the country or just yeah, Lords? All, or, no, all around the country. So I did every game at Lords, um, but I, I did, I think, all but one at Trent Bridge, um, all but one at the Oval, uh, and then I did a few here and there, I did both semi-finals, so I did Edgebaston. I didn't go to Old Trafford until the semi-final, so I did stay... I say south, south of the Midlands, effectively. Um, did a couple at Taunton, um, so yeah, they were shared around quite well. But it was it was a it was a good competition, um, culminating in the culminating in in an amazing final, which actually for two thirds was quite an ordinary game. Um, but then, obviously, with a couple of hours to go, the ironic thing was the day before the final, from my own point of view. The, obviously the presentation at the end of a World Cup is huge because you've got not only the lift for the, the competition, but you've got everything over the course of the competition, which is presented, um, you know, best player, most runs, wickets, whatever it may have been. And obviously the squad reads and everything. Um, and I didn't realise until the day before that we were doing that, which is the norm, obviously, with England internationals in this country. So on the Saturday, I found out that we were doing a rehearsal and I said, well, I don't need to go to that. And they said, well, you do, you're doing it. So okay right fair enough so i was very much aware that there was not only coverage obviously on sky but on the sunday there was free to air coverage so, do you get nervous oh no i wouldn't say was nervous. it just now become the norm yeah it's just the norm so and, and maybe part of my thing last year i went into lords early on for a game and it was just another day and i thought you've got to tell yourself that you are lucky to be working at such a great venue so you can't take anything for granted but yeah, it's it's like anybody. I always used to you know, used to say that if you know whatever your job is, you just go in and you do it naturally, and you don't think about it. So I'm quite fortunate that I'm like that, having done obviously for for so long, and arguably probably for a few too long. But um, on that particular day, for two thirds of the match, it was uh, you know a standard match. Obviously very nervous, very proud when we played the anthems for the final. Um, when the players were out, that was that was a, a nice moment, and got a few, several people, have given me the you know the recordings of that, which is something nice to keep. But I was aware that there was obviously an awful lot of people watching that day that wouldn't normally watch, so the audience was bigger, particularly with the free-to-air factor away from away from the normal sky. And I'd geared myself up, particularly during the chase second innings, that 
it was going to be tight. And I think then when um, Joss Butler got out, I kind of thought, right, that's it. So I kind of gave myself up that, okay, it's going to be New Zealand that are going to win this match. Um, Two thirds of the audience will turn off. 80% of the crowd, of which was obviously packed at Lords, would leave very quickly. So actually this presentation, there's actually going to be no pressure on it whatsoever. And um, obviously that was in my mind. I got that. And of course then, gradually, Stoke started to get England back closer and closer. And there's not a great deal that it... I'm always... I don't like to ever say this was good, this was good, because I'm always my own worst critic. But the only good thing through experience... Back at finals day, several years ago, we'd had two um, super overs on one day at finals day. The only time I can ever remember it. And I was fortunate that earlier that summer, I'd covered some women's one day internationals, which were broadcast live. And in that um, series, if there was a tie, there was a super over. So I I had written down all the details for, for what there was on a super over. So fortunate at Edgebaston on that day when we had the Super Overs, I'd got it in my notes what was able to happen. So straight away I was able to give the details to the crowd. With about four, five overs to go, we were in a different position at Lords for the um, World Cup. We were actually over um, just to the left-hand side of the pavilion as you look at it, outside, um, set up with the music and everything, and the ICC offices were behind us. And I said, someone please check what happens if it's a tie? And that was about the only bit of credit I'll take for the whole thing. So when it did finish a tie, straight away, out came the details again, which hadn't changed, funny enough, since Edgebaston. So I was able to say to the crowd, super over, right, this is what's gonna happen. While being a bag of nerves, because wanting England to win. So going back to the, the point, I'd set myself in New Zealand to win, so I was quite chilled. Then, of course, when it got to the end, England are going to win. So all of a sudden I'm thinking, right, this is going to be completely different. Then, of course, we go to the Super Over. England bat first, do pretty well. Plus, because of the amount of boundaries that have been hit, if it's a tie, England win. That was something else that we were checking, you know, on the iPhones, going through apps, how many boundaries hit in in, in each of the innings to make sure that was dead on, because again, if you get it wrong, you are the one to be made to look an idiot. So doing that myself. We then have the Super Over, England in great position. And of course, then the six comes in Jimmy the Super Nisham, Over. Yeah. Jimmy Neesham hits a six. And all of a sudden, it's New Zealand again. So deflated, deflated in the chair and thinking, oh, this is, this is too much, this is too much. People passing out all over Lords, you know, the biggest amount of most casualties they'd had. Um, at a game in that hour, you right? Know, okay. I think <laughs> so they'd they had, <laughs> yeah, they'd had more, I think, in that hour than they'd had in the whole season. You know, not surprisingly, it was it was dramatic stuff. And then, of course, Joffre bowling the the last few balls and all the drama of the run out, which um, was just fantastic. And of course, the the only slight negative with the whole thing was that because it was a third umpire decision for the run out, it kind of it was that thing that England themselves knew, but everyone else was still a bit worried to, to, to go too mad too early because, you know, in case there'd been a problem with the breaking of the stumps or, or whatever. But yeah, just absolutely amazing. And, you know, the atmosphere was just 
fantastic. So when he when Joss Butler took the stumps mm. uh, to the bells off, for your job itself, did you have to kind of rush down downstairs and get everything ready for the well, presentation? Well, at that point, it was a case because they'd called for the third umpire, we couldn't do anything. Right. Because, and there was no big, we couldn't do congratulations England, we couldn't do this is what's happened because it was just like a normal referral. The players obviously knew because they were close to it. We were by the pavilion, so behind the angle, had no idea how close it was, what had happened. So we had to wait until the decision came up on the big screen before things. And of course, by then, everybody's on the pitch, everybody's running. But yeah, when that happened, obviously then it was a case of, right, go through the congratulations, this, that, all the, the rigmarole. Obviously the stage was gonna take 10 minutes to build, so there wasn't the immediate rush to go over there. Um, but with England winning, of course, in my mind I'm thinking, okay, everybody's still gonna be watching this, so make sure you get it right. Um, so yes, yeah, so do you remember the exact words you gave to uh, introduce Owen Morgan? Before he Not got given really. I remember, all I remember was that um, our director we had, um, very funny, um, just before, Ian Smith was on commentary for the, the world feed, which was obviously being taken. And I hadn't really thought too much about it. Uh, and I won't say his exact words, but literally uh, he told Ian Smith 30 seconds to the presentation and I was next to the stage. And uh, he said, Right, Graham, we're coming to you in 10 seconds. Um, only 8 billion people watching around the world, my old pal. Don't it up. And it was just what I needed because it, was, it then made me laugh and relax and we went into it. But again, during that, Kane Williamson got an award. Man of the, um, player of the uh, tournament. Player of the tournament. But of course then, he was the next on. So he was one end of the stage, which was a big old stage, long stage. They took him round and he had to come all the way back round. So that needed a bit of filling, which just meant I had to take a bit more time on the next thing because he was being brought all the way back round the stage to come on to be introduced again. So again, that just needed me to fill a little bit more, um, you know, just trying to make sure. But overall, it, went, it couldn't have gone any better. It was fantastic. And obviously with the lift, with with England. I was going to ask you to reenact that, that moment. I'm not sure I can remember the words that you know, it was, but it was, it, again, it was just a case of, and this again comes from so many presentations over the years where the dignitaries are there handing the trophy over and then are trying to get out the way and to make it all look right and, and just a time as, as the lift goes, you know, the trophy goes up, which was, um, uh, you know, was a fantastic moment. And, you know, as I say, if, if I don't ever do anything else in cricket, I'll always have that honour, you know, of, of, of lifting, doing the trophy lift, which was fantastic. So, And then just feeling straight afterwards a case of completely drained um, because it was, uh, it was just such a day. And I think, obviously, the schedule closed was something like 6.30, I think 10 to 9, where we would consider going up for a drink. And ironically, I was going away for a few days break the next morning. So I couldn't, I think I went for one drink uh, quickly, said goodbye to a few people who'd been involved in the tournament and, uh, and dashed off so I could get a train back because the next morning I was flying out at seven o'clock to, to have a break. So um, yeah, just fantastic memory. And that was you know, a great competition. And as I say, it was just a, for two thirds of it, the most ordinary game of cricket you'd ever like to see and then turned into something that, you know, will never be reenacted again, again, I don't think so. And then, Followed on by the Ashes series, how did 
headingly compare? Headingly was amazing because I mean Ben Stokes from is a your perspective in terms yeah. of Ben Stokes is a fantastic player and you know he's a very very special talent and he's a he's a top guy and um, that game was just dead and it was a case of we could be out of here Saturday um, after the way England batted in the first innings. And the way that I describe that match is having been involved for 20 years in Red Bull cricket, championship cricket, uh, test match cricket, um, I think I'd only ever seen something like that once before. Because, you know, you know, we know in a test match, in a championship game, that if a side's set over 320, 300, nine times out of 10, they're not going to get there. And nine times out of 10, they don't get close. Um, but that was just phenomenal. And we were aware the pitch, obviously, maybe got a little bit better to, to, to bat on. But Australia were a very, very good side. And obviously with Nathan Lyon playing um, and the force that he had late in the game, there was always that thing of it's just a matter of time. Um, and I can only recall it happening once um, before where, uh, again, it was a Sussex game and they, I think, were playing Gloucestershire many years ago and I think got 360-odd. Michael Divanutu uh, got a big score um, Tony Cotty got a big score There was, uh, and Sussex chased it down but that's one in 20 years and again that was a test match that was one in 20 years um, but I mean Stokes when he gets in the, the eye that he has is just phenomenal some of those shots were breathtaking absolutely breathtaking the, the, you know, a couple of those sixes uh, and chance in the arm were just absolutely phenomenal um, yeah, and at the end of the game, obviously, when he won the match, yeah. at the presentation, you yeah, obviously was... must have been next to him. How did you introduce? Do you remember how you introduced him? Well, two know? things about two things about that presentation was all around the end of that game, and it happened the previous season when Alistair Cook finished his got his century at the Oval, which again was a fantastic moment and. The time, the, the thing with that, when England won that game that day with Ben Stokes, I said nothing because it didn't need anything. The drama and emotion of the crowd. I mean, there's that great shot when he, he pu pushes the ball through and the whole crowd lifts. It didn't need anything. But I have to say, I was actually probably more emotional at the end of that than I probably was at the World Cup. And before the, before the presentation, I went to the bathroom and just gave myself a few minutes because the emotion in the ground was just absolutely phenomenal. And I think it was, you know, Ben said since in various documentaries, you know, obviously at the time things don't really soak in. And I think a few of the players went on and I think Joe Root said to him, take this in, take this in because of, of the, the drama. Um, and of course the ironic thing was, it was, it was one of those things we were waiting to, to go home. And it was, the, it was just a case of this was just delaying the inevitable and we were being kept there long enough. And of course, we went from that to one of the most extraordinary innings and, and players played their part over that, particularly Jack Leach, obviously, at the end. Um, but yeah, with that one, I actually didn't go down on the pitch because where we were working, we were working um, in the newsstand at Headingley. So um, I just did that from a distance. But I think my big thing there was to make sure that when that presentation was done, he got the recognition for, for what he'd done and what he was or what he is doing for England, because that was an innings that you know, was just out of this world. Um, I would go as far to say that, that the hitting on that day was some of the most brutal and best I've seen 
um, in any format, let alone Test match cricket. Um, you know, and I've seen some. I've been lucky. You've enough seen to a lot of cricket. Great players. Um, that was, you know, just out of this world. Um, but yeah, presentation, making sure that when it came to the man of the match, giving him his spiel and his speech was to the level he was, um, you know, and hopefully that was done. Yeah, some phenomenal memories. So how does this summer look for you in terms of scheduling? Well, summers, uh, we're in the planning stage at the moment. Um, January, February always is about trying to, to fit everything in, trying to work out, making sure I can do as much for... Uh, Sussex as possible, making sure I can do as much uh, Lords as possible, uh, fixing in with the internationals. Obviously, we've got uh, test matches this uh, summer with uh, West Indies coming over in uh, June, Pakistan later on, uh, quite a bit in between. Obviously, the 100 is new this year, which we're not going to be part of. It's going to be done by somebody new, which we can kind of understand because obviously it's something very, very fresh. Um, so yeah, we'll be doing um, you know some test matches. We'll be doing some T20. We'll be doing um, several days here and there, trying to fit everything in the schedule. Try not to annoy too many people, but um, no, looking forward to it. And um, obviously a quieter summer after last year, but that's inevitable when you have a, you know a summer with an Ashes and a, and a World Cup. But um, no, still exciting and, and still very much looking forward to the, the opening days of the season. You know, walking in to Ho for the first time, walking into Lords. Um, and obviously seeing how England fare against uh, the West Indies because it will be too serious that England uh, will obviously be expecting and expected to win fairly comfortably on home turf. Um, but no, always exciting. But yeah, you get to September and having done four or five months of constant work, you know, you're ready for a break. But as soon as April comes round, you're ready for another season to start. So uh, yeah, very much looking forward to it. Perfect. Graham, some great stories there. Appreciate you giving us a little insight into your day-to-day -day life as a, as, a, as a voiceover artist as such. Absolute pleasure. Neil Kagram, Cricket Last Stories, Graham Wilded. Thank you.